I think there's an important distinction between ideology and personality. You can have ideological purity wedded to a kind of antisocial and autistic personality. And when you have people like that, it's very hard to build working organizations because they're always looking for excuses to have purges and sectarianism and you know, purer-than-thou <laughs> contests and things like that. And, and then there are people who are just more socially adept. And one of the things that strikes me as, as important for our people is, is just to recognize that we have all these people who are worried about respectability, and they think that ideas confer respectability. And that means mainstream ideas confer respectability. And so they want to hide their ideology under a bushel and they want to creep towards the mainstream and they want to encode what they say in euphemisms that sound more mainstream. And they think that they're going to gain respectability from that. Of course, in my eyes, they just become contemptible. Uh, but they're not worried about how they look to people to their right. They're worried about how they look to people in the center. And when I saw your interview, I thought, you know, you're doing the right thing because you were not concerned about the respectability of your ideas. When that woman said, are you a racist? She was hoping that you'd be like a typical conservative and say, oh, no, I'm not a racist, you know, or, oh, no, I'm not a national socialist. Instead, you just accepted those labels because it turns out that they're true of you. And you made them respectable because you behaved in a respectable way. You behaved in a courageous way, but you weren't truculent or aggressive about it. You didn't communicate in any way a sense of uh, insecurity about these things or insecurity about your status as a human being. And I thought, this is the, this is the key. We have to recognize that we can make aberrant, extreme ideas respectable. And we have to spend some of ourselves to do that. We have to spend some of our credibility, spend some of our persuasiveness, use whatever powers that we have to try and make these ideas more respectable so that the mainstream moves in our direction. And I thought that that was an extremely valuable lesson, right? And, and I think that people should just watch that video. I think it was quite exemplary. So, I guess this gets, uh, is coming around to this question. So how ideologically purist are you? And are you more interested in finding people who work well together as a team uh, as opposed to just finding people who are willing to sign on to a sort of ideological platform? Okay, well, your, your question was quite long, and it's comprised of, I think, three or about three different elements. And um, yes, you, you just in regards to the interview that you mentioned, it's about picking your battles. I mean, that was an ideal situation for what I imagine what most alt-rightists would like to be in that situation, because that was a very rare media situation we had kind of picked that allowed us to present ourselves would allow us to present ourselves in that way, right? That involved turning down like 70 different interviews from like people like Louis Theroux, right? Okay. People who have the camera on you for, let's say, three or four weeks. They edit out anything of significance you had to say. And they, you know, they even did what they could with that particular interview. 
But at the end of the day, they have only a limited amount of media to work with. And the people who you're dealing with, who I was dealing with that day, were not um, really that ideological. They didn't understand the political nuance. I mean, like you said, it, I was defying expectations. The lady, she had like big pad of notes, right? You know, kind of first thing she asked me was, do I want a white Christian Britain or a Christian Britain? And I was like, this has not gotten on. Uh, this is not, you know, this didn't have a very good start, right? And those notes just went by the wayside like five minutes into the interview. And the entire thing was nadlipped back and forth. Yes, you have radical ideas, but I'm part of, you know, normalizing those ideas is to defy expectations to be presentable, but in certain battles. Now, most of the time, we, we've had to fight quite a long way to get to that point. Majority of the time, you are engaged in a struggle in which your enemy is trying to shut you up through force. And so what you actually need to a degree is kind of an intimidating organization, right? Be, you know, uh, an organization where if that person is found to be a member, they'll think twice about actually taking action against them, about running them off a campus because, you know, they're regarded as dangerous or, you know, that they have um, something that the enemy doesn't, that they're stronger than the average man, uh, you know, mentally and physically. So in regards to you, one of the issues you raised was... Um, Basically, there's people who we should have who are normal, functional people, but they're cowards. But the movement also attracts people who are fundamentally dysfunctional, right? Now, the way we deal with this is to have an organization that doesn't treat itself too seriously. So, I mean, and I think that's almost in the question you were asking earlier about, you know, uh, where is this political organization going because it's down in the gutter, right? But if the importance of formality is it's an attack on the ego, you can't maintain, like basically, I, I, I one thing that was raised in the interview, right, was uh, the case of Zach Davies. Now, he was a loner um, and a as the court found, he was like basically psychopathic. He had a long history of violence, problems with the police. And, um, you know, he'd been kicked out of school for chasing a pupil uh, with a knife. Um, lots of domestic incidents. And uh, he had been claimed to be a member of our organization. But he never got in contact with us or never went to our events because, well, because we were able to, you know, profile him. We, we looked at, you know, who, what the guy was like. So I can say this with some certainty is that that type of person would not have thrived in a highly social environment where you have to be genuine. People who are these dysfunctionals, uh, you know, like if you notice, they're all LARPers, right? So... If you want to get rid of them, that is why we have an informal organization. And that really annoys some of our members because 
they do like everyone has an ego. Everyone does want to be taken seriously. Right. They they want to have a. I, I get this sort of thing. Excuse me for interrupting. I get this sort of thing uh, in like discussion forums in the United States, uh, like at the RightStuff.biz. They have their forum, and there's this consistent demand from what appear to me to be highly autistic individuals for like position papers and official statements uh, like they want this to be a political party or an ideology they want it they want it to have a bolshevik model right where there's like everything is determined down to you know what are you a vegetarian or not what's your status on this and that and they're they're frustrated when people don't present that to them and I, I kind of think that that's good in a way to frustrate that demand because it kind of f freezes everything, um, makes it overly neat and tidy, and it's premature. It's totally premature, right? Uh, it's like you know drawing up constitutions or deciding what you're going to name the streets in a in a new white Britain someday. <laughs> and uh, the people who want that are 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 autists and larpers and. They're the kind of people you kind of want to drive away, I think. You you want to repulse those people. At least I do. I mean, that's why uh, she asked me, "Do we? what are your policies? It's like we don't have any policies. We the, Other than the, the our mission statement with, you know, the, the free white Britain or by extension the free white Europe because we are the sole inheritors of this land. It belongs to us. Okay? Like... Uh, it, and it goes back to um, actually, there's quite. It reminds me of this uh, quite funny interview that someone gave to um, Gregor Strasser when he was a deputy within the Nazi Party, and he was like um, this a journalist was haranguing him, like debating with him, saying, you know, going, okay, okay, you know, you've told me everything you're against, okay. You haven't told me what it is that you believe in. What is it? What do you actually like stand for? And um, and Gregor says National Socialist Party stands for the opposite of everything that currently exists. Just <laughs> uh, you know, like the idea of just like you know, none of us are nuclear physicists or you know, we, we obviously will eventually political parties will attract people who have you know who are going to be like the Benjamin Franklins of their age, right? Who are going to, um, you know, take us to the moon or whatever. But it is not necessary to have... You, you should have a policy if you're a political party, but it is not the most important thing, and no one really cares what that is. Like, if you look at the... If you're just looking at purely in pragmatic terms, you look at someone like Trump... You ask the average like guy who's going to vote for him, what are his policies? He's going to say, be in a wall and, um, and no Muslim immigration, right? Even if those weren't his policies, that's what he's portrayed to the, uh, to the masses. And there's nothing else. There's like not this 5,000 word document that, you know, explains everything that they're going to do in the future. Uh, but I mean, this functional personality is not just like, you know, the LARPy types, you've also got those who are inclined to, uh, you know, let's say, like, um, who would like to use organizations as a pretext for terrorism 
and uh, and violence because they want to they want they don't want to live they want to die and they want their death to have some kind of meaning and you know by not presenting by being a quasi satirical organization we deprive them of that by you know have but at the same time we we're entirely serious we have these we are totally committed to the ideology and to the image that we put out. Like, there's never been anything put out that I am um, ashamed of in regards to our image. Like, that's one thing. We do have quite a uh, a radical image. I'm not sure if you've seen uh, the way national action activists present themselves. Uh, marches and rallies. Uh, but they dress in all black, uh, you know, with sunglasses or um, half masks, skull masks, combat boots, something that is physically intimidating. On its own, it would be LARPy, but it's just something that it took us two years to get to that because it evolved organically. You know, uh, we started off, we were just wearing plain clothes and it grew to that because that's just, you know, kind of like we became who we were. It's not someone someone just sat down one day and we said, this is going to be the uniform of the organization. It's just uh, came about by consensus and by fashion. You can't mandate fashion. You can't, you know, God, God knows political parties, far right ones all the time, try to change fashion, right? They have all these proclamations about how for the last 20 years you've had a white nationalist movement that says we're going to make white nationalism family friendly and it's all big fat guys with bald heads, you know, and tattoos. <laughs> you can't dictate fashion. You've got to set an example and make something happen there. Yeah, again, setting the example rather than offering the purely verbal critique is the way to go. I remember in 2001 I went to the Fête de Blue Blanc Rouge in Paris, the big national front rally. And I, I, I hung out at the Young National Front Pavilion, this tent, and it was basically where skinheads were going, right? But it was very, very cool because the French skinheads were much more, they're much more fashionably attired than British or American exactly. types. You know, they didn't have shaved heads. A lot of them had the sort of marine-style high-and-tight haircuts. They looked like they were getting their clothes from the Gap, and uh, yeah, they, they were fi physically fit, and clearly, you know, they could be a threatening group of people if threatened. I just thought this is a much better look, right? You know, it, it just it looks better. They were dressed like people who expected to be running France someday, rather than people who thought they were always going to be on the margins. That's just what it communicated to me. Aspiration. Yeah, it's aspiration. It projects aspiration. Yeah, and that was the thing about the French scene is that was allowed to to grow because there's quite a large, even though they have the Front National now, they have quite a large number of organizations uh, in the country. Whereas in Anglo countries, it's been a lot more centralized. We've had a lot less political success than mainland Europe. And there was a time around the 2000 when you know our leaders said, okay. We're not going to have any more of this, but without providing an alternative for that culture. So they just shoved it, tried to shove it under the table. But cult, the only thing that can succeed is culture. So that's what persisted, except it was fossilized. Like, um, and all we're left with is really the, uh, you know, the next generation. So there's the old regards to something like, let's say, blood and honor, which is 
still alive and kicking, uh, you know, with a couple of Zimmer frames flying around. You know, they're, they're good people, but, you know, they have their kids there as well, and they're embracing the modern look as well. But, yeah, Europeans, have, mainland Europeans just haven't had this problem. They've gone forward into the 21st century. We've tried to repress that, and we've stagnated as a, as a result. Um, but just to tackle another one of the points you brought up earlier, and that is, okay, we deal dealt with the people who are asocial, psychopathic. How do we stop those? And the autists. How do we stop them coming in the group? Then you have the other group, uh, group that you mentioned, which, which is people who agree with our ideals, but feel that they have to be socially fashionable. The way I see it is that people are attracted to strength. Like, it suits us fine that those people should not be in the group because they can never be... If their main motivation is material, like their own personal security, which is perfectly understandable for many of them, then they will never be appeased. There's nothing you can do to make yourself more presentable, to give them the what they want, which is permission to be nationalistic, right? They need to have permission from the enemy to say, yes, it's okay for you to express your beliefs in this way. But what the little guy needs then is an example. They need someone who is going to fight for them, to, to, to fight on their behalf, to give them something strong that they back. It is very even more demoralizing for them or counterproductive for them to have examples who appear and who are not fighting for their ideals, who are making concessions to the enemy uh, constantly, like the mainstreamers you're talking about. Um, I think that what we need is... Um, what we need are militant organizations that can give people hope. That's really well said. One thing you said earlier that was very important is a remark on the importance of culture. And this is where I think my interest in metapolitics overlaps with groups like National Action, with Generation Identity, Casa Pound, and so forth. Because metapolitics, as I define it, really deals with the necessary conditions for political change. So it's not politics, but it's what comes before politics and makes politics possible. And it divides up into two things. One is our message, ideas and propagating ideas. So it's ideas and the different media by which they're propagated. And the other is community organizing. And it strikes me that the weakness of the British scene, as I've seen it recently, and the weakness in America especially, is that everything, all the energies get too easily channeled into political party activities. And in the United States, what happens is we don't have any nationalist parties. So what happens is we get all of our political energy sucked into people in the Republican Party, basically. People get really, really excited by some Republican uh, Ron Paul, you know. I remember that a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they they put a huge amount of effort and money 
I, I've known people, you know, honest to God, national socialists who have donated more money to Ron Paul, a libertarian, than they have ever done to the uh, white nationalist movement, to any organization within the white nationalist movement. And and then, of course, they're disappointed and betrayed by these people again and again and again, but they never learn. And when the disappointment comes, when the betrayal comes, a lot of these people just lapse into inactivity because there's nothing to sustain them uh, outside this um, election cycle politics. And I, I, I had the feeling that that was somewhat true in Britain, too, that all these energies were being drawn into the British National Party, and it was pretty impressive the number of people who would sign their names uh, and be public BNP supporters and stand for office and things like that. Uh, I think that on, in one election, there were more than a thousand people who stood for office. I don't think you could get three Americans to stand for public office on a nationalist uh, platform in a country of 300 million people. And so I was really, really impressed with what the BNP was doing. But, you know, what sustains people between election cycles and what sustains people through the inevitable disappointments of being a small party you know, standing against big parties uh, is having a community and a culture they can fall back on. And that's what was so impressive to me about the Front National. When I went to this big rally, it was not just a political thing. They had all these pavilions and tents, booths, where there were people selling food and wine and books and handicrafts and things like that. And it became very clear to me that this was not just a political party, it was a cultural movement. It was a cultural movement full of people with wives and kids. Uh, it was multi-generational. There were three or four generations of people in the same family attending these events. It was very, very impressive to me. And that kind of thick, rich social context, that community, is what sustains the right on the continent. Uh, and I see that as being very thin in the Anglosphere. Um, and so... I think that by working to create groups like National Action, you're trying to give a thicker community, uh, white community organization, that is sort of the matrix out of which political parties can eventually emerge. Because eventually, like I said, we're going to have to have state power. And one of those vehicles for that is, is political parties. It would be nice, frankly, though, if we could just influence everybody. So eventually all the political parties would be uh, basically, uh, you know, advancing our cause, just as today, all the political parties are advancing the cause of the enemy. In response to that, I would say that if you're only coming into politics with the idea of having a political party, then you only have half of an overall strategy, because a political party's power rests on a credible threat. So the idea is that if that party does not have power, then its enemies, with, its, with their control over the legal and political financial institutions, can systematically dismantle and destroy that uh, organization in hundreds of different ways. What you need is a situation where that political party has 
uh, a mon- well, a monopoly of violence behind it. For lack of a better word, you say you put it in a nice way in regards to having influence on community, but in terms of ultimate game theory, it needs to be there needs to be a situation where if that political party faces repression, then it will result in um, a breakdown of of uh, well of in a civil war, essentially. So the cost of taking down the party legally is greater than the uh, is greater than the cost of having to um, to 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 oppose the backlash that comes from doing that. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that all nationalist parties need to have the same attitude that communist parties did, which is that they will never give up the struggle, and if they can contest for power in the political system, they'll do that. But if they're locked out of the political system, then it's time for them to break the political system. I I remember when Flam's Block was banned in Belgium, and the leader of the Flam's Block, uh, which you know started itself up again as, as Flam's Belong, said that Belgium has has killed Flam's Block, and Flam's Belong will kill Belgium. Well, that's a bit of bravado, and I don't think they carried through on it. Uh, they certainly haven't certainly. done it yet. Yeah. But yeah, you have to have that attitude. It's like, look, we're not going anywhere and we're not going to stop trying and we will win eventually. And how we win the hard road or the easy road is entirely up to the political mainstream. Uh, And uh, if you don't take yourself that seriously and if you don't project that you take yourself that seriously, people will walk all over you. And so, yeah, you do have to have the attitude uh, you do have to project the attitude that you're a serious group of people and you do not want people to think if people th- look if people kick you it's it, it has to be like kicking a hornet's nest right if they don't fear that it's like kicking a hornet's nest they're going to kick you they're going to do whatever they can to to get you down and so yeah there has to be a credible threat you have to project credible power you have to project seriousness and willingness to not stop basically just because these people are going to say i'm sorry it's illegal it's like fine well we're going to change the law then well i mean that applies at every single level greg like when you're starting out as an organization how can you threaten that as your ultimate goal when uh you're unable to stand up for yourself when you face your very first challenge there have been many organizations that have been Repressed by the state. I remember um, a few years ago. You'll remember the Immortals in Germany. Germany. They were like a f- the, this uh, flash mob people who used to wear um, these white masks and held, held these torchlit rallies, and they were persecuted by the state. Now these guys are German nationalists. They're pretty tough. Mm-hmm. But we have situations in England. You had, um, you know, like these small groups like uh, National Culturalists who used to get run off campus. And mm-hmm. this was so infuriating to us. And I swore that this would never, ever happen to us. So um, when our guy got run off, uh, when he was made to leave uh, the university, um, we created this huge kind of media storm that resulted in 
the university spending a about the equivalent of a hundred thousand dollars in litigations against national action as an unincorporated entity banning us from the campus, <laughs> like spending that much money just to stop us from uh, appearing, right? But you know, we actually fought, fought them. We didn't just run away with our hands up. We fought them there. You had um, the uh, the whole Luciana Berger incident. So one of our members, Garen Helm, uh, he was imprisoned for tweeting, um, uh, for making a tweet that included like an offensive image of um, of Luciana Berger, who's a Jewish MP in in Liverpool, and. Um, as a result of that, because he was someone who did everything to stand up for himself, people could get behind that. And what resulted was what is entirely unheard of in British politics was for an absolute, like this massive trolling operation uh, called, um, that was run by the Daily Stormer called Operation Filthy Jew Bitch. And she got about she was getting literally tens of thousands of tweets every day. She had to live under, um, like the SAS had to go and take her and like put her under 24 hour surveillance. Uh, it was absolutely absurd. And, um, all these other different politicians were being attacked. They had no means, no recourse and nothing they could do about it. And it's like, this is what happens when you persecute one of our people. Yeah, it's just words online. But if they're to believe, be believed, words hurt. Words were bad enough to send a young man to prison who had no, um, on the flimsy of pretext, flimsiest of pretext. So he was held, he was imprisoned under something called the Misuse of Communications Act of 1986, um, um, under the article of like it being somehow racially aggravated. Like all he said was, hashtag, you can always trust a Jew to show their true colors because she's saying how uh, Labour didn't, the Labour Party, uh, which ran Britain from 1997 to 2008, did not fail on immigration, right? When they brought in 2 million uh, third world wasters into the country, like more than any other previous government, right? Having mass arrests uh, right after, in fact, right after the Garen Helm incident, um, we held a, uh, a demonstration or attempted to hold a demonstration outside uh, Luciana Berger's office. This was entirely legal. This was on the pavement outside. They were getting out some banners and stuff. And a bunch of police vans turn up and haul all of them off, raid the houses in the dead of night and under very bizarre pretext, really, they like none of our people have, have ever, ever been charged with um, with a, a crime relating to activism or anything that they've done. Um, uh, never, never even been charged, let alone convicted. Uh, yet they kept trying to, to pull this on us. And no one has it only increased um, their conviction that they're fighting for the correct cause. Um, uh, because it, when you're persecuted in that way, it intimidates people who are not ready for it. But with our organization, we don't want it for our people, but it has to be expected that there are some things 
that we are willing to face um, prison and persecution for. There are some things that are worth fighting for. So somebody has to take that leap. Somebody has to go out there and actually do something and stand up and fight and not back down. That's that's really well said. Is there anything you'd like to say, and especially that you'd like to address to people in North America, which is where most of our listeners are, if if somebody wants to do this in, in the United States or Canada, what would you recommend? Okay. Um, it involves, it is going to involve quite a lot of hard work. You need to work on a local level. The, the people who you need to be contacting and working with need to be within just a few hours drive and, and no more than that. You need a small group of people to get them together and you need to take advantage of what is the greatest gift American possesses, something I am so, so jealous of, and that is the First Amendment. You need to take that to its full. You need to be putting out the most shocking, offensive material that will get you into the media, which the system can do absolutely nothing about. So all your poll humor, something to that effect, it needs to be out there. That will propel your group. Um, I, I, to give you an example, there was a, um, there was, there was a very small action uh, down in, in Florida uh, University. Some guy um, or group, uh, group of activists uh, fly posted, I believe, uh, yeah, Florida University. And they got covered by four different news networks, like daytime television, over some stickers that they had put up. This is the kind of activism that you can use to start up an organization. You need to kind of recreate the identity that Americans had when, you know, as a movement, because the problem with Americans is they, and this isn't a harsh criticism, but it is a, a serious problem, is there is no unified idea of what the American far right kind of is exactly. Like, as far as most uh, Americans would be concerned, the leading face of that would be someone like, um, you know, Robert Spencer, you know, the counter, uh, you know, like um, uh, the counter jihad guy, right? That's what we understand as your, your far right. When, you know, you do have a far right that goes from, Dark. you know, from the, the 1930s all the way to the present day, but it needs to be rekindled as a, you know, a modern identity. You need to be in the 21st century, and you need to connect yourself to uh, Europe and its struggle as well. That's, again, really well said. What I have to say, Greg, I really admire the fact that you... Um, I really admire the, your um, uh, your diplomacy, the way that you're willing to approach lots of different groups. The movement does deserve a little bit of mockery. Like, it sometimes deserves people like that. There's quite a, a divisive person here in this country called Joshua Bonehill. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him. I've heard the name, but I don't know anything about him. He's he's really famous for... Basically, he was a very famous internet troll. He's just been sent down for three years for posting, like, um, for uh, for some propaganda he made for his group. 
Like, but he he kind of attacked lots of people on the right as as well. Like he was just this completely anarchic, self-parodying figure. Like, um, one point he hit these, the uh, BNP tried to re- kind of recruit him, and he turned up there, and he had like this 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 kind of like butler servant guy who came with him, and he said, "Leader Bonehill has entered the room," and then he sat down. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, and this guy, and he's sitting in the front row, and his servant goes up and he goes, Leader Bonehill requests to speak. <laughs> he, he just... Look at any story. I mean, he, um, the last year he's been in trial for an entire year. He's, he beat about 14 of the charges, and he got caught on, um, essentially for, uh, a propaganda image that had the Jew.jpg, mm-hmm. you know, the What Man cartoon? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, they, they, they gave him three free, free years and four months for that. I mean, that's the one thing. We've never, ever had a situation where uh, any of our people have been in trouble for online material because it does require – you can if you can be very clever with the way you, you put yourself out there and not get yourself into legal trouble. Wow, that that that's amazing for for the happy merchant meme. Is that basically? Well, it was like he was he organized like he basically trolled like a bunch of neo Nazis into setting up, uh, le- going to a protest. It's, he created this protest in Golders Green, just right. like heavily set. So he sent all these like these skinners who now like all hate him, but he like petitioned all these neo Nazis to go out there, and he made this propaganda image, which is like um. We need to clean, it's something like, we need to clean up Golders Green, and it was like an overgrown Auschwitz, and like someone's applying weed killer to all the grass and stuff. And, yeah, <laughs> Jesus. And it's, you know, propaganda involved people like, you know, with chainsaws. Um, but they, he's now in trouble for the letters he's sending out of prison, because they include all these drawings on them, so he's got 9-11 Jews, he's got a stamp that says the Harold Shipman seal of approval, who's like this mass murderer has got Hitler on there. He, um, he, when he came into the courtroom, he announced that he had, um, he had actually, um, embraced diversity and that he was wearing, uh, Islamic and Catholic prayer beads. Mm-hmm. And it was just, uh, he's got this sense of humor. It's like, uh, you get in public schools, yeah. like uh, what you call private schools in, yeah. in America. He got, had one year before he was expelled. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, yeah, ninety nine percent of people don't get him, but the movement does need people like this who kind of parody and ridicule them. <laughs> yeah, this this just Google this guy, and there is he has more stories than National Action about him. Just mm-hmm. this one guy, mm-hmm. he's he's just been a constant shower because he used to he used, he used to run this um, internet newspaper called the Daily Bail, where all of the stories in them were fake. <laughs> <laughs> and it got like like a Tesco took him to court because he said that they were like bringing in spiders from third world countries, or uh, uh, he got a, a pub closed because he said that they didn't um, they weren't serving servicemen. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, in fact, he was he was taken to court by Nick Lulls, the head of Hope Not Hate. Mm-hmm. He, he was quite quite a prolific anti-fascist, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, it's the equivalent of Mark Potok in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And for stories he was putting about, uh, out about him. And in the court, he was sitting there on his phone putting out stories like, uh, Nick Lowell's has sex with dog in public. Here is the reason, here are the witnesses, you know, like. 
Or, or the way he'd phrase it would be like, be like sick left wing pervert. Right. It's like everything had uh, had vitriol. Right. Right. And he has guts. He doesn't care. He has been raided by the police mm-hmm. literally hundreds of times, and he nothing stops him. He's been in court like a dozen times already. Just nothing, and even now he's just been sent to three and a quarter years. This was within the month, and he does this, and mm-hmm. there's just nothing that will uh, crush his spirit, I guess. I think we should probably wrap this up at this point, and I've got a bunch of editing to do. Sorry about that, man. No, no, you, you, you've been great. You've been excellent. So, Ben, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation, and I hope this is the first of many. Okay, thanks, Greg.